Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Are you embarrassed of your non-traditional beliefs about God? Victor Gluckin says that it's time to stand up for what we believe. Believing God is one instead of three in one is not some sort of fringe doctrine. It's at the very heart of biblical faith. After all, Jesus himself identified the Jewish Shema as the most important command. He said, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Knowing that Yahweh our God is one, and loving him, not them, with everything is paramount for authentic Christ-centered Christianity. Drawing on the examples of the prophets of old, Michael Servetus and John Biddle, Gluckin urges us to boldness. He says, quote, The testimony of Scripture to the proclamation of the identity and personality of Yahweh is clear and consistent. Yet today, many believers in the unity of God remain silent, afraid, and ashamed. My brothers and sisters, things should not be this way. Our God and our Lord deserve more from their followers. End quote. Here now is Podcast 79, Proud of Our God, with Victor Gluckin. We're going to talk about being proud of our God, and I'd like to make an honest appeal for zealousness on this position. Centuries ago, when the Lord delivered Israel from Egypt, it was this event which He used to declare Himself to the nations. The renown of Yahweh spread throughout the land as people heard of the destruction of Egypt, the superpower of its day. Rahab of Jericho, along with the rest of the residents of Canaan, heard and trembled when hearing about this God. And this is what Rahab uh, said to the Israelite spies, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to those two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For Yahweh, your God, He is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. So it's from this time, this, you know, if we want to call it uh, Yahweh's coming out party when he destroyed Egypt, that he begins uh, to work throughout the years to progress his plan and purposes, while at the same time declaring who he was. After this dramatic event, we learn a great deal about the God of the Bible, from his own words to his recently redeemed people. The Lord met his people on Mount Horeb and audibly spoke to them the first ten commands of his covenant with them. This must have been an incredible day to hear the voice that... Uh, years before had said, let there be light, and there was light. The people are audibly hearing this and uh, freaking out, basically. Yahweh uh, says these words first in Exodus 21 through 6. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or in earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. From these two first commandments, Yahweh declares that He is the God of Israel, the one that brought them up from Egypt through the awesome and terrible wonders He performed against those so-called gods of Egypt. And there are to be no other gods held by the people of Yahweh. While Egypt had many other gods and idols, the only God needed by the people of Israel was Yahweh. For in fact, He was the only God. And God also commanded them at this time not to make an idol, an image representing their God. Yahweh, as the Creator, could be seen through His creation as well as His mighty acts, and perhaps the most relevant way that His people would know their God was through His words and commands. And no image could contain or portray His glory. Amen to that. Days after Yahweh audibly spoke these words to the people, they became restless and pressed Aaron for a new God, a new way to be entertained, a new leader to take them to a new place. Exodus 32 tells us that, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled around Aaron and said to him, Come, let us make a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in your ears of your wives, and your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And then they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast day to Yahweh. Though this record is familiar with most of us and taught in Sunday schools weekly worldwide, perhaps the one aspect of this record is overlooked, which I wanted to highlight. It was wrong for the children of Israel to complain against Moses. It was wrong for Aaron to give heed to their desire. It was wrong to make a golden calf and bow down and worship it. But certainly the greatest sin that was committed on this day was to worship and celebrate this golden calf as Yahweh Himself. It wasn't just that they were making this new God. Oh, we're the cow people now. Listen to the words of, of Aaron and the people. They did not proclaim a feast day the next day to the golden calf or a God with a new name. Instead, Aaron said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and tomorrow shall be a feast day to Yahweh. The statement, I believe, is quite significant. The Israelites chose to worship the sacrifice rather than to whom the sacrifice was to be made. The people wanted and needed to see their God because they lacked faith. And this, however, was not the way of Yahweh. On this day, they broke the first and second commandments and forsook the God who only weeks before saved them from their enslavement. Over 40 years later, just before the Israelites finally entered the land, the Lord reiterated to the people these important truths on the banks of the Jordan River. He did not want His people to again make the mistake about who He was. And who He was should have been clear to the people. Deuteronomy tells us that, Remember the day that you stood before Yahweh, your God, at Horeb, when Yahweh said to me, Assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my word, so they may learn to fear me all the days of their lives on the earth, and that they may teach their children. He's talking about the day when He audibly spoke the Ten Commandments to them uh, years before. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. Then the Lord, then Yahweh, spoke to you from the midst of the fire, and you heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. 
So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded to you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. I know there's a, an alternate uh, text, textual reading of this, um, where Moses actually had three tablets of stone, and he came out and declared the 15 commandments, and then he dropped one, so it was just the 10. You might have seen that in Mel Brooks' movie. But I, we can probably trust this text here. There are probably two tablets of stone. The Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments, that you might perform them in the land we are going over to possess it. So watch yourselves carefully, since you did not see any form on the day that Yahweh spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire, so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth. And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven, to see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which Yahweh your God has allotted to all peoples under the whole heaven. So he pretty much covers all things in the creation that they shouldn't be uh, bowing down and worshiping instead. So watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of Yahweh your God which he made with you, and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything which against which Yahweh your God has commanded you, for Yahweh your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And then he continued, so that they understood how serious he was on this critical command. It's interesting what Yahweh does. He calls for the attention of his easily distracted people. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which Yahweh your God has commanded me to teach you. O Israel, You should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, that you may multiply greatly, just as Yahweh, the God of your fathers, had promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. And then what God does is interesting. He cries out to them to get their attention. He says, Shema, which is the Hebrew word for hear. Listen up, pay attention. Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Then it shall come about when Yahweh your God brings you into the land which He swore to your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you, great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. Then watch yourself that you do not forget Yahweh who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. For you shall fear only Yahweh your God, And you shall worship Him and swear by His name. As time progressed, the view of God's unity and exclusivity remained unchanged. Read some of these verses from the prophet Isaiah later in the the canon. There is no God besides me. Who is like me? Is there any God beside me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. At at one point, God even like gives everybody a minute. Anybody out there? Go ahead. Go ahead. Any other gods? And it's silent. 
Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb. I, Yahweh, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one beside me. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Very, uh, there's a lot of ambigu- ambiguity in these, in these verses, I'd say, right? For thus says Yahweh, who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh, and there is no one else. Yahweh has not been shy in declaring who He is to His people. It is critical that they know who He is for the fact that He commands them that His commands to them directly relate to knowing Him. How can you love Yahweh with all of your heart if you do not know who He is? This fundamental principle of Yahweh being one and the only God remained foundational to the Jewish faith after the closing of the Hebrew Scriptures. The calling of Israel to listen up, that Shema calling, and recognize that Yahweh is their God and His name is one, continued through the teachings and writings of the rabbis and remains today. Consider for a moment two of the prayers in a modern Jewish prayer book, which include a call to hear the words of the Shema daily. In the morning, soon after rising, the following should be recited. Hear, O Israel, Hashem, meaning the name, they they don't want to say Yahweh there. Hashem is our God, Hashem, the one and only. Blessed is the name of His glorious kingdom for all eternity. That's the kind of thing I'd like to wake up to in the morning, right? Maybe set our alarms to do that or something. Before going to bed each night, uh, according to the Hebrew prayer book, Um, This should be prayed. This should be recited. Blessed are you, Hashem, our God, King of the universe, who cast the bonds of sleep upon my eyes and slumber upon my eyelids. May it be your will, Hashem, my God and the God of my forefathers, that you lay me down to sleep in peace and raise me erect in peace. May my ideas, bad dreams, and bad notions not confound me. May my offspring be perfect before you, and may you illuminate my eyes, lest I die in sleep, for it is you who illuminates the pupil of the eye. And these final closing words of this prayer before you rest your head on the pillow will be, Blessed are you, Hashem, who illuminates the entire world with His glory. Hear, O Israel, Hashem is our God, Hashem, the one and only. The Shema is traditionally whispered into the little ears of Jewish newborns, being the first thing that they hear. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Eloheinu, Hashem Echad, were also the last words sung out by countless Jewish martyrs throughout the ages, declaring their unswerving faith in God, even in the face of death. Now, the call to attention for the people of God was confirmed and continued in the New Testament as well. This is not a strictly Jewish idea. When asked what the most important commandment was, this is how our Lord Jesus answered. He said, quoting this, The foremost is, Hero Israel, Yahweh our God is is one Yahweh. And you shall love Yahweh your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else beside him, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Jesus agrees that to be able to love Yahweh with your heart, you must know who he is. 
You know, it's interesting. He doesn't say, what's the most important commandment? Well, obviously, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He quotes to listen up. Yahweh is this God. He is one. And, and loving Him with everything is the foremost commandment. This is beautiful. Not only does this record tell us that Jesus himself held the view of Yahweh being the only God and being one, we also see that he commends the man who understands this with the greatest compliment of all time. To understand that God is one and to love God with all of your heart, with your all, brings you close to the kingdom. James, writing after the ascension of his half-brother, the Messiah, reminds his readers that you believe God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? James assumes already that his audience is convinced that there is only one God and spends his time urging them to have obedience that corresponds with the faith they said they had. There was no need for him to write in response to anyone being confused about who and how many God was. The Apostle Paul also shares this view and alludes to the Shema when he writes to the Corinthian believers that for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things, from whom are all things and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through Him. He tells Timothy that there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. When one turned the page from Malachi to Matthew and read on to Revelation... The call to recognize that there is only one true God, the Father, continues with clarity, consistency, and simplicity. What about today? Sadly, today, as we know, the call for the people of God to rally around the one God of the Bible has been replaced with a love of a triune God, which takes pieces of biblical monotheism and unites it with Greek mythology and pagan philosophy. Instead of Yahweh remaining one for all eternity and any thought of any other gods existing being crushed in the echoes of his proclamation from Sinai, the world instead learns of a triune God, co-equal and co-eternal as Father, Son, and Spirit. Instead of hearing that only the Father is God, the nations hear about a Father who is also the Son of that same Father and that the Son is also as old as the Father. Rather than the Son of God being the divinely begotten Messiah who will rule on David's throne forever, we hear about a God, the Son figure, who has left a heavenly throne to come to the earth to show us the way to heaven. Rather than learning about the Son of Man, the apocalyptic figure who will take over the world and receive the nations to rule from Yahweh, we learn that Jesus was amazingly 100% man and 100% God. Rather than God alone possessing immortality, we hear the story of a God who loved His creation so much that He became a man and died to save them, while at the same time holding the universe together and while dead, bringing Himself back to life. Now perhaps the stories that the modern church is preaching, teaching, and singing about warms the hearts of parishioners and concert goers, but the problem lies in the fact that to find biblical support for these sermons and songs would be a vain task. And this is one of the great challenges of our day. People are learning theology from Plato and getting their doctrine from Michael W. Smith rather than Moses, the prophets, Messiah Jesus, and Paul T. Apostle. Paul T. Apostles and Paul the Apostle. Church members are being told that the Trinity is an essential doctrine and in the same breath that it is a mystery they will never fully understand. Congregations are hearing that they must believe in the Trinity to be saved and that to question the Trinity endangers their salvation. There's probably a lot of people who are just 
scared to death sitting in a pew because they don't understand something that they have to understand to be saved. It's poor people. Popular Christian music is teaching these things to young and old alike with beautiful harmonies, without people even knowing what is occurring. While millions sing along with the songs on their local Christian music radio station, they are forming their view of God and Jesus based on song lyrics rather than Scripture. The song of the year, according to the Gospel Music Association's annual Dove Awards, this is the uh, Christian equivalent of the Grammys, for the last two years have been songs which clearly promote the Trinitarian or other view of God and Jesus. Songs which speak of the Father being the only true God and the like are absent from the airwaves, yet it was the Father which Jesus directed the true worshipers to worship. Before we move on, I just wanted to give you a little sample of this. Um, I wanted to play a few clips of popular mainstream songs that you perhaps know the words to, that you have heard on the radio. And I want, I'm going to put the lyrics on the uh, overhead here so that we can read what people are singing about. And like I've just said, I believe that people are getting their theology from, from this music rather than reading the scriptures, right? I mean, I've had people tell me that you know God uh, would rather die than to ever live without you. And I hear Avalon, the Christian group, singing that as they're saying it. You know what I mean? So let's, let's take a little uh, minute here and, and have some fun with this. The first one is uh, by Mark, Mark Schultz. There, the Almighty God, your Father, is the risen Son of Man who bore the sins of man, the Holy Lamb, Lord of. I mean, there's we don't know what's going on in this in this song, but it's very inspirational. I mean, people's people are you know are hurt and broken in the world. They hear a song like this and they're like, you know, it it brings them joy and rest, and it's and it's forming their view of God. Uh, You'll enjoy this one as well. I get, I get excited. Uh, and okay, so, and, and what I do is whenever I hear songs like this, I begin, I try to rationalize. Okay, she's talking to Jesus, and then she's going to the Father. Okay, she's talking to the Spirit. But then, without even, like, you know, giving me an explanation, suddenly that's all God, and the mounds are telling us all that. I don't know if St. James would agree with Rebecca on that one. Uh, this is just a small clip from Third Day. You are my Father in heaven. 
beginning of the song, and each verse uh, spoke about the Father, then the Spirit, and Jesus, and the chorus uh, was sung to all three, I guess. Uh, this one... Just, just, we'll just have to... Mary's eyes, the first eyes you saw Did you remember choosing the shade of brown? Were you surprised at the shepherd's crazy story? Did you know you wrote the song the angels sang? What was this life like for you? Todd hasn't replied when I said no to that last question, but uh, bless his heart. So, you know, here, this is this was a song that came out on Todd Agnew's Christmas album. Uh, so it was played during the Christmas season, but it stayed on the airwaves after that because it was a beautiful song of praise to uh, to somebody. I I'm not really sure. And here, here's another part of that same song here. Did you remember the brightness of your glory? Did you just notice it was cold and dark here? Did you know your name or did you have to be told? Were you just a baby or were you as old as time? What was your life All right, so uh, the rest of that song continues in the in the same. Somebody's going to have to write write him a letter and help him. He's asking these questions. Maybe it's genuine. Uh, the next song uh, was actually, uh, I believe it was last year. One, you know, what would be the equivalent to in, in the Christian music uh, realm to the tops to the top award, the top Grammy, the Song of the Year award. Chris Tomlin, a, a, a great worship leader, which I I really enjoy his music. Uh, sings this beautiful song about how great is our God, and, and he includes these lyrics in it. Very catchy. I have these lyrics uh, going through my head, <laughs> especially since I had to, you know, spend 88 cents to download these all legally, so I could cut a little splice. Oh boy. Anyway, um, but they're very bold in their proclamation of these things. Um, they are proud of who their God is. They are unashamed to declare uh, to the world that age to age the same, beginning and the end. God had three in one. You know, were Mary, when Mary, when you saw Mary's eyes, were they the first eyes you saw, or did you remember choosing that shade of brown? You know, this is this is what's uh, being out there. And music is powerful, so you know, it's, it sticks in your head. So when a uh, you know a nice Unitarian boy comes up to you on the street and says, "Hey, do you believe that God is one? What do you think about Jesus?" Well, the first thing that comes to your mind is, "Well, age to age," and then that's what you say, but you don't sing it. Let's get back to uh, this here, but that was an example of, you know, what what is uh, being promoted and 
what's sticking in people's head. Uh, the Athanasian Creed is my favorite of all the creeds. And uh, let's, let's skip through uh, some of this. But uh, consider the following zealous pronouncement of the Athanasian Creed. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God. Yet there are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son Lord, and the Holy Ghost Lord, and yet not three lords, but one Lord. My wife is a math teacher, and this makes her head spin. I mean, this is, this is very confusing. For like as we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord, so are we forbidden by the Catholic religion to say there be three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Ghost is of the Father and the Son, and, and it continues on. But one thing I wanted to highlight in, in the bold there. He, therefore, that will be saved must think of, the, think of the Trinity, must thus think of the Trinity. Furthermore, it is necessary to everlasting salvation that he also believe rightly the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Trinitarians are bold in their proclamation. And I believe one reason for this is that they are in the majority. When one feels they have many supporters and backers, it is easier to be straightforward and clear against a small majority that disagrees. I'm not afraid to say I'm a Yankees fan in this setting right now. When I go home to Rhode Island, 40 minutes outside of Boston, that's a tough situation there with these Red Sox fans. You know what I mean? When you're in the majority, you, you feel empowered. Their boldness on the part of the Trinitarian camp is strong and powerful. At the same time, though, their doctrine is erroneous and non-biblical. And this boldness even has become a stumbling block for those who could turn to God for life in the age to come through Jesus the Messiah. Just one example of this is found in a publication from a group known as Jews for Judaism. And and Lawrence, you'll appreciate this. They write, Christians claim that this three-part God that they worship is the same as the God worshipped by the Jews. That is not true. The Bible states, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Twice every day, the believing Jew cries out these words. They are the first thing a Jew learns as a child and the last words he utters before he dies. On every Jewish doorpost, there is a mezuzah proclaiming these words. They are again found in the tefillin, bound daily next to a Jew's heart and mind, proclaiming this most basic principle of Judaism. Worship of any three-part God by a Jew is nothing less than a form of idolatry. Idolatry does not necessarily mean worshiping a God of stone or wood. Even if a Jew worships the highest angel, it is also a form of idolatry. God is the infinite one, creator of all things. Anyone who worships against anything else, worships anything else, is guilty of idolatry. The three-part God of Christianity is not the God of Judaism. Therefore, in the Jewish view, Christianity may very well be a variation of idolatry. Although Christianity began among the Jews, it was rapidly adopted by the pagans of the ancient world. And these pagans believed that the entire pantheon, they believed an entire pantheon of gods. It was just too much for them to give up all these gods in favor of the one true God. So early Christian missionaries comprised, compromised with these pagans by introducing a trinity, a sort of three-in-one God. Even many contemporary Christian scholars see the Trinity as a result of pagan influence on Christianity. This might represent an improvement for the pagan, but for the Jew, it is a regression, representing a step backwards towards idolatry. Christians really believe that Jesus was God, and this is one of the most foundational beliefs of Christianity. So the zealousness on the Trinitarian camp is clear to at least this group of Jews and and many, so they know that that's not something that is going to 
work for me. While the Trinitarian doctrine is boldly and zealously proclaimed by churches today, the Jews will not turn to a God-man Messiah. Their law forbids it. We just read the verses. The religion and God of the Jews was supposed to progress and continue to the faith and teaching of Jesus the Messiah, but sadly, it would be a wonder if Jesus and His apostles would even recognize what is being preached in their name. That's really the song we could sing, Did You Know About, right? Though we seem to be in the majority, I propose that in fact the numbers are not as one-sided as we might think. The entire canon of Scripture is on our side. The testimonies of faithful witnesses throughout the ages are with us as well. Perhaps most importantly, the one God of the Bible stands with us to strengthen and empower us. So why is this important? Well, aside from the need to line up our beliefs with Scripture, the New Testament speaks of other important reasons why this question of one God or a trinity really matters. In an amazing contradiction to what is being taught in churches today, Jesus, the founder of our faith and leader of our church, said that it was a matter of eternal life to know the Father, who He called the only true God. And Jesus, the Messiah, the one sent by the Father. Paul also taught that the belief that a man could be God would be part of the great deception in the last days. The Apostle John writes, A liar is the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah, and that the very root of the spirit of Antichrist is found in not acknowledging Jesus was a man. If eternal life is found by obeying the first and great commandment, why would one deny the importance of knowing who, quote, the Lord your God, who we are to love above all else is? If it was possible for the Israelites to worship the golden calf as Yahweh, how much more of a subtle deception could Satan be working if he could deceive the nations into worshiping Jesus as God himself? Throughout history, though, an impassioned minority of people who have believed that, the only, that only the Father was God and that he was, not, that he was one, not three, boldly stood for these truths when they were pressed by their opponents. You've heard of Michael Cervantes. He was a Spanish physician and theologian who was executed for his beliefs by the Calvinist government of Geneva. He was born in Villanueva de Siena, Husca province. He studied law at the University of Toulouse, medicine at the universities of Paris and Montpellier. Beginning in 1540, he practiced medicine in Vienne, France, where he also served as the personal physician to the archbishop. About 1545, he began a correspondence with the French Protestant theologian John Calvin. Although still a nominal Catholic, he described his heretical opposition to the concept of the Trinity. He wrote to Calvin in 1545 about his desire to go there, but Calvin did not answer. And in a letter to one of his ministers, he condemned him to death, a goal that he got in 1553. He was arrested while attending church in Geneva, convicted of heresy and blasphemy against Christianity. When the sentence was announced to Servetus, he broke down completely, for he had expected an acquittal, or at worst, only banishment. But he soon regained composure. He sent for Calvin and begged for his forgiveness. And Farrell, who Sean mentioned earlier, the minister at Neuchâtel, had arrived that morning at Calvin's desire. He tried to get Servetus to renounce his errors and thus save his life. But Servetus remained true to his convictions, only begging for another form of death, lest the suffering at the stake caused him at last, to weakly, at last weakly to recant. Pharaoh accompanied him to the place of execution where a, large, where a large crowd had gathered, and there he died with a prayer upon his lips. 
Spectators were impressed by the tenacity of Servetus' faith. Perishing in the flames, he is said to have cried out, O Jesus, Son of the Eternal God, have pity on me. Pharaoh, who witnessed the execution, observed that Servetus, defiant to the last, so-called, might have been saved had he but called upon Jesus the Eternal Son. A few months later, Servetus, who is dead now, was dug up again and again executed, this time in effigy, by the Catholic Inquisition in France. John Biddle was known as a biblical scholar, and he became well known for his translation of the scriptures. In the course of his own scholarly research, he became interested in the early church dogma and textual criticism. These studies would lead to Biddle to reevaluate the current church theology against his own research based on the earlier Greek and Latin texts of the scriptures. Biddle was not discreet about his own research or his personal views, and in 1644, he was questioned by the local authorities at Gloucester to answer charges brought against him for anti-Trinitarianism views, but he was released on bails. On bail. More charges of anti-Trinitarianism were being leveled against Biddle and his followers. Biddle was discovered conducting religious meetings in his home during 1662, and he was hauled into court, charged and fined 100 pounds under the common law. This is 1662. That, that was a different sum of money as it is now. So he's convicted under common law, not religious charges. Unable to pay the rather large fine, Biddle was sent to prison where he contracted a fatal illness and died there short, a short time later on the 22nd of September. The jail he was in had such poor conditions, he died a prisoner because of his faith. Heroes of our movement like Servetus and Biddle undoubtedly teach and inspire us. Yet today, from the pulpits and churches who on paper believe these same biblical truths, there is often shame, hiding, and even denial rather than boldness and bravery when this topic comes up. I spoke to a pastor a few years ago who told me that they used to discuss the Trinity with people, but that now they have decided not to discuss it at all with people because their conversations never led to change or perhaps caused a lively discussion. I have heard a story of a woman who was looking for a non-Trinitarian church to attend. When she found one in her area, she asked the pastor of the church if they believed and taught the Trinity. The pastor, assuming that this woman was a Trinitarian, he hesitantly replied, well, we are, we are biblical Trinitarians, perhaps meaning they believed in the Father, Son, and Spirit. But this was his reply to this woman. I am sure that her joy of finding like-minded believers was immediately stolen. On another occasion, a family of faithful members and supporters of a non-Trinitarian church wondered why the Incarnation was not being preached on during Christmas. The mother of this family approached the elders of the church to inquire about the lack of incarnation-related sermons and music. Her family believed that Jesus was God. When the elders told her that the church did not believe in the incarnation or the Trinity, she was extremely hurt and angered. Feeling betrayed and lied to, she proceeded to write a letter to every member of the church to inform them of the beliefs of the church. She felt that after she faithfully attended the church for over a year, without once hearing that they did not believe in the Trinity, or in fact what they believed about God and Jesus at all, she had been lied to and deceived. She communicated this to other members, and it was a warning to warn them as well. In similar incident, a man visited a biblical Unitarian church in his area after moving into the neighborhood, and he faithfully attended this church for months and developed a relationship with many people there. 
After time passed, his good friend heard where he was attending church and did some internet research on that church. To his surprise, he found that an affiliated church was clear and bold about their belief in the unity of God. He passed their information on to his friend, who approached a member of his church to confirm the news. Since that day, his attendance has become very infrequent and communication was limited. He said that since learning of this news, he felt confused and sad. Now, we obviously can't control uh, what people do, but these, these are illustrations that the information was not being shared with any of the people in the church in these instances. Sadly, these are stories from the groups entrusted with the proclamation of the Shema today. I wonder how the hearts of Michael Servetus, John Biddle, and the other martyrs would feel today towards their Unitarian brothers. Perhaps, rather than anger, they would be heartbroken. The testimony of Scripture to the proclamation of the identity and personality of Yahweh is clear and consistent. The confirmation of the Shema comes from the lips of Jesus and Paul. Beyond the text, we have faithful men and women who have lived and died, believing these truths from the Scripture. Yet today, many believers in the unity of God remain silent, afraid, and ashamed. My brothers and sisters, this should not be this way. Our God and our Lord deserve more from their followers. The lives of our faithful brothers and sisters throughout history are due honor from their family today. So what I say to us today is Shema. Listen up. Pay attention. Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. We are to love Yahweh with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I offer the challenge that we would reject any fear or shame associated with the proclamation of this truth. We should be proud of our God. We should all have joy, gratitude, and love towards Yahweh because of His offer of forgiveness and salvation in the coming kingdom. We should shout it from the mountain, rooftops, and street corners that our God is Yahweh and Yahweh reigns. We should write these words upon our hearts and our doorposts. We should teach them to our children and speak speak of them from our pulpits and dining room tables. We should work together to understand the challenging verses and share our findings with each other. Rather than simply trying to counter the opposition of a Trinitarian perspective, we should be driven by the truths of the Scriptures and boldly share who and how many our God is with our family, friends, neighbors, and enemies. Now why? Well, aside from the fact that our love for God should be pouring from our hearts and thus out of our mouths, There are other reasons why we should not hesitate or shy away from sharing with people that we believe God is one. There are a few reasons why I believe this is important. Number one, there are people out there who already believe this and they don't know that others do. I have heard of many examples of this. People in our nation and around the world right now who believe just as we do about the unity of God, yet they think they are the only ones who would hold such a seemingly heretical belief. Imagine the next person you share the information that God is one already believes this to be true. What a wonderful opportunity we would have in that moment to connect that individual with others in the community of faith. The same thing has occurred by clearly identifying our beliefs in our statement of beliefs, teachings, publications, and websites. Also, there are people who do not know there is a difference and they really believe that God is one. People have been attending a Trinitarian church all of their life, and when asked by a Unitarian if they believe Jesus is God, they have adamantly replied, of course not, Jesus is the Son of God. Some are unaware that their church even believes in a triune God. Many have been amazed to find this out and gladly welcome the fellowship and teaching of Unitarian believers. Number three, 
believe it or not, people are willing to consider and change their views. It would be wrong to assume that all of those who we converse with about this issue will argue, debate, and ultimately reject. Many will and have argued, debated, and repented. Some, after much prayer, study, and consideration, have changed their beliefs, all because of a conversation, tract, article, book, or other communication about biblical monotheism. That this happens is always very encouraging and inspiring. One should not be discouraged that someone takes time to investigate these matters, for we would not want them to simply follow blindly. As I've mentioned above, knowing who God, who the true God is, is very important. Jesus attaches a significant value to believing that only the Father is God and that He is one. If one believes that the identity of God is a minor issue, they will not be burdened out of love and concern to share that information with others, especially those who they know hold a different view. However, if one agrees with Jesus on these matters, they should be provoked to speak, knowing that understanding that He is one and there is no one else beside Him puts Him not far from the kingdom. There are people out there who are afraid to question this belief because they fear that even questioning it is endangering them eternally. Sadly, Scripture does not testify to this. In a quick survey of some key, what I'll call, what I must do to be saved verses, we are told that confessing Jesus as your Master and believing that He was resurrected, as well as believing that He is the only begotten Son of God, are all requirements for salvation and eternal life. Nowhere does the Bible teach that one must acknowledge Jesus as God to be saved, or that in not doing so you will be damned. Sharing this with someone could help dispel the lie that even to consider that the Trinity could be false endangers their eternal life. Instead, this could free them to see eventual change. There are also people who are simply following their church leadership or teaching and never would think that it is something that should be questioned. And this is another reason we should not be shy when given the opportunity to speak about our God. In one recent example, someone was applying for a job at a Christian school. This teacher was a Unitarian and the school was Trinitarian. At the initial interview, the teacher shared with the administrator what they believed about God and Jesus. They did not want this to come up or cause problems if hired by the school or if asked by the students in class. Knowing that this potentially would be a deal breaker, the teacher did not become ashamed under this pressure. Amazingly, however, the administrator did not reject the teacher, but instead said that it was not something he had ever thought to consider or investigate, and was impressed by the time that the teacher had taken to seek the truth. He said he never questioned the Trinity and was curious to know the teacher's reasoning. There are other instances where people have not even considered that there was an option to believe something other than Jesus being God, and have been challenged to study the subject when people have not been ashamed of who their God is. And only addressing six short points, we can see that there is a great need for us to be proud of our God and teach others about who He is. So final thoughts about how we do this. Jesus said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. As the guiding principle of all of our dealings with the world, the words of our Lord here give us direction on how we must act and communicate on the issue at hand. In light of this, I think there are two principles that are effective in discussing these issues with those who believe Jesus is God. Let me first say that I think we can be effective when discussing these matters with Trinitarians to take what I call the offensive approach. And by offensive, I do not mean with the intent to offend, but rather more of like a proactive uh, approach. One could sit on the other side of the table and answer questions 
to our view of John 1.1 and John 1.14, Isaiah 9.6, Genesis 1.26, all day long, and though I think perhaps this could be productive at times, most often the questioning party will change topics quickly when our answer becomes clear or they lose patience to listen to our words. Instead, I think that if we endeavor to keep on one topic or verse at a time, we can, Lord willing, make some progress. Also, being hammered by a barrage of questions and verses while not being given a respectful opportunity to respond is not going to go anywhere. Why not offer a question during the discussion which puts the burden on the proof on the side that says it is in the biblical majority? For example, let me ask you this question. If Jesus, if Jesus is God and God is immortal, could you show me from the Bible how Jesus could die for our sins? What do you think about that? Or, or maybe if the standard definition of the Trinity includes the idea of co-equality, how could Jesus be God if he said, I can do nothing on my own initiative? It is critical that we always ask for biblical references and support. The scriptures are our best friends at times like this. What I mean by offensive, again, is I have sat on the side, the other side of the table, or, or wherever you might be, and the person goes, you don't believe in the Trinity? And after they get over the initial shock that that's possible... They say, well, what about John 1.1? 1, 1? And I start to explain to them of the beautiful, you know, the plan and the mind of God, you know, and it's beautiful. I break into an English accent and start to sound just like Anthony. It's beautiful. <laughs> but then by the time it starts to make any sort of sense, they say, well, what about John 1.14? Well, what about Genesis 1.20? And, and so it's like they really couldn't care less. They just want to know if I have an answer for all these things. When instead, I can be like, well, can you tell me how God could die if Jesus... You know what I mean? That's what I mean by being proactive. Secondly, cordial discussion when allowed with upfront and open statements, along with the thought-provoking questions, can be helpful. When you are upfront and open with one on, from the onset with someone you are speaking with, the opportunity for the Unitarian cat to come out of the bag later in a conversation or weeks, months later, does not happen. This can also ease any tension that might arise later as a result of you trying to hide or avoid the topic. Surprisingly, I have seen much less resistance and negative emotion as a result of this approach by people when I speak with them, when, when I speak people I speak with, than having to dread that the subject may come up after we have already established our relationship. And then you get a little inside into my mind, my own personal notes here that I guess are in your copy as well. An example of this is when you're in a conversation with somebody who knows a Trinitarian, you bring the subject up right away. Hey, I don't think Jesus is God. What do you think about that? And, and rather than, you know... I've been friends with this person for months and months and months, and we share, you know, we both love the cross, and it's this beautiful thing, and then it comes up, and, and they never want to see me again. It's something that we get to talk about right from the onset, and there's usually not this tension or this pressure or this fear of it coming out later. Finally, and this is, this is important, I... We should all spend more time on this. But finally, it cannot be stressed enough how important it is for us in our zealous proclamation of the beautiful unity of our God to be Christ-like in our presentation and discussion. Our love for others is the distinguishing mark of our allegiance to Christ, and there is an important need for this love when facing those who disagree with this view. Sadly, the other side of this discussion has been active in its persecution, slander, torture, and death of those who deny the Trinitarian dogma. And this practice continues today, though in a thankfully milder environment in most places in the world, where the extent of persecution, 
A biblical Unitarian faces being asked to leave a church, not getting hired by a Christian school, having evil words spoken about you by another, getting blocked on a message board, or being kicked out of a Christian chat room. While I believe it's an effective at times to take an offensive approach, as I explained above, when discussing the nature of God with Trinitarians, we must use love always. We must understand, though, that even when using love, persecution may arise as it has for all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. But I believe that we can be steadfast in knowing that the God of all comfort, deliverance, and resurrection is the one God we are worshiping and proclaiming. Perhaps even the witness of our love towards those who make themselves our enemies could win them over in the end. The testimony of Scripture is clear. Yahweh is the true God. For those who wholeheartedly seek Yahweh in His ways, He will be found by them. God knows how important that it is that mankind turns from their idols and know Him. And our God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator but also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. For those who know this truth already, we should be unafraid and unashamed of our God, even in the face of opposition. This information must be rooted deep in our hearts, and our love towards, faith in, and fear of God should be evident to all. Like Israel, we too have been redeemed by God and are heading to the true promised land of the kingdom, being led there by Jesus. Through Jesus... God is again declaring who He is to the world. He desires a people to be His own possession, a people who will bring Him glory, a people who speak of the glory of His kingdom from the rising of the sun to the setting of the same. And we need to ask ourselves whether we are those people. Are we the people who identify ourselves as sons and daughters of the one God, the Father of Jesus, the Messiah? The devils believe that God is one and they tremble. If we believe that God is one, what does this cause us to do? May we all be proud of our God, the one God, Yahweh, the Father, and of His wonderful Son, Jesus, the King of the coming kingdom. Shema, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Well, what'd you think about that? Quite a rousing appeal. This is actually from a 2008 One God conference, the conferences that Ken Westby used to coordinate. Sadly, Westby fell asleep last December, uh, December 2016, and he's uh, no longer putting on these conferences, and we're going to miss his kindness and his dedication and his own passion for God dearly. But this one was from 2008 when we held this conference here at Living Hope in Latham, New York, which was a great time. I wanted to also let those listeners in the L.A. area know about an exciting meeting that's coming up this month on April 30th, uh, 2017, where Anthony Buzzard and Robin Todd and some others are going to be heading over to the Church of the Open Bible in Pomona, California, to organize with people from the L.A. area to see about planning a church in that area, apart from the Pomona congregation. So if you are listening to this and you live in the greater L.A. area, please check this out. You can get more information by contacting Robin Todd. 
His email address is robinsingsforyou, where it's the number four and the letter U, at comcast.net. I'll have that in the show notes. Or you can call him at 360-701-9219 and inquire about this. So that's exciting. Robin's in the business of connecting people with people, and he does a great job at that. His website is the Scattered Brethren. So check that out. If you're in the Southern California area, you should definitely put that on your calendar to attend. Some great folks over there. I've been to that church once before and met some great people there. And together, you can uh, encourage each other and reach out to others, bring them into the fold. And then I just also wanted to read out a comment by John Bainbridge on Podcast 78, which was a sermon called The Insidious Danger of Self-Righteousness that I had preached uh, a little while ago. He writes, Hi again, Sean. Great topic. Thanks for sharing it on the show. On the subject of vigilance and citing various types of person you have met who have appeared hypocritical to you, I would be curious to hear a bit more about the so-called hypocritical atheist who prayed. Obviously, I have absolutely no idea about this guy, but then neither does any other listener And I, for one, was a little puzzled by this. (laughs) Hypocrisy is bad. I totally agree. I want to be an authentic John before others, before God, and even the mirror. But if that person was actually praying, albeit suspending their intellectual convictions, perhaps to see experientially or just to follow a deeper vibe, I don't know if I want to presume anything negative there. Maybe even the opposite. Thank you again for your hard work on Restitutio Blessings, John. Well, thanks for taking the time to write in, John. As far as the atheist goes, I don't think he would want me announcing his name on the podcast here. (laughs) But have you ever heard the, let me ask you this, have you ever heard the expression, there are no atheists in a foxhole? Well, I think that's pretty much true, that even if they don't believe in God generally, when push comes to shove, it's pretty easy to cry out, even if you're not sure if there's anyone there to listen. So I certainly wasn't trying to disparage any atheists from praying or from believing in God. Obviously, as a Christian, I would love for any atheist or agnostic or deist to come to Christian faith because that, in fact, is the path of salvation. But um, I was just using this as an example to say that hypocrisy is not, by nature, a Christian problem. It's a problem that afflicts humans in general, uh, religious or non-religious. And it's something that we all have to be on guard against. So I hope that clarifies a little bit where I was coming from in making that comment. And if anyone else would like to add their voice to the mix, why not stop on by restitutio.org and check out Podcast 78, The Insidious Dangers of Self-Righteousness, and leave your comment. Or if you want to make a remark about this episode, Proud of Our God with Victor Glucken, You can find that under Podcast 79. Last of all, if you found this episode inspiring or helpful or convicting, you think it would help others, please share it on social media so other people can find out about it. We're on Rest Studios on Facebook as well as Twitter at SF or Facebook.com slash SF. And this way you can help others to discover these same truths. So until next time, remember, the truth has nothing to fear.